Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Oh, tonight we got them. Goldie, the Sulk, and JC. And it starts right now. So, welcome back to another episode of a typical disgusting display podcast for writers by writers who hate writing. Uh, later today, we're going to be talking to former Letterman writer John Beckerman. We are excited to talk to him. He's agreed to do Johnny jokes with us because he's not a coward. <laughs> he is a true writer, so he will be on here to do this. And uh, next week, we're excited to announce that next week, Jimmy Carr. If you've been listening wow. to this show, you, you heard that Jimmy Carr somehow, some way knows about our podcast, likes it. <laughs> And he agreed to be on, and we are incredibly excited to talk to him. Thank you, yes. Jimmy Carr, for coming yes. on. That'll be next week. Um, Goldie, I had a little a little story uh, today. Goldie and JC. JC, you're allowed to listen to. Oh, thanks. So I'm calling this this story is Ha Ha Funny, and you'll okay. hear why. So you know, we all know he's been on the podcast. One of the writers on Family Guy, Danny Smith. We love him. So I, good. I love. Uh, yeah, there it is. Already, <laughs> haha, funny. Good, he's, I get it. Seth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's Danny. I got goosebumps just thinking yeah. about it. So, so Danny Smith, uh, I I love him. Like he, yes. he feels like a member of my family now, who I really enjoy hanging out with. I I relish being in rooms with him, and we make each other laugh constantly he's just a joy uh to be around but one of the things i've noticed uh over many many years now uh of of texting with danny is that danny uh, he's a little older than we are he does not know how to ha ha a text okay so this I, it took me several frustrating months to figure this out because i'm i know we make each other laugh in person very easily and so sometimes when we're texting and i'll send out a gem and there's <laughs> yeah. no you know and i'm ha-haing the hell out of his shit and there's nothing coming back 
and 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 Goldie, this isn't like you and Viner, where you know you have simmering resentment right under the surface for me. So I understand why there are no hahas. This That's is not Danny true. Smith. This is Danny it's Smith. It's above the surface. <laughs> there it is. Give it to him. First joke of the day. First joke That's of the right. day. Yeah, anyone who listens to this podcast knows that it's well above the surface. So so uh, you know it as it happened last weekend. I'm on a text chain with Rich, uh, Rich Appel, and and Danny, and a few of the assistants because we're we're mapping out. Uh, he's writing an episode coming up, so we're mapping out some stuff for that. And the text chain sort of devolved into jokes. You know, we're we're writing silly shit back and forth, and of course, I'm sending out again gems. And Rich and I are ha ha each other, and Rich is sending very funny texts too. And I side text Rich, and I said. Texting him, I'm like, Danny does not know how to ha-ha a text. Don't take it personally. As I'm sending this text to Rich, a ha-ha emphasis comes in on Rich's text from Danny Smith. And I was like, holy shit. And I'm texting Rich on the side again. I write, I, I'm infuriated. I'm you not, think this, it was the Velociraptor learning to open the door in that moment? Yeah, well, here's, okay. So here's what happened. I'm, I'm, I'm furious, you know, and I'm like, I cannot believe this. And uh, the rug has been pulled out from under me. So then I look at the text chain. One of the other assistants on the text chain is Rich's assistant, Dan Smith. Oh, that's right. <laughs> so it turns out he was the ha ha and all was right with the world again. But for a brief moment up there, you know, I was absolutely livid. So Danny, we love you. And let's yes. sidebar. Danny's a few weeks and behind. Just, you just hold down your thumb, Danny. I, I know. <laughs> hold down your thumb and new options come up. There's a whole world of reaction. <laughs> there we go. So Danny, he, he's a, he loves this podcast. He's a few yeah, we weeks behind. Him. He was just talking to me about the Michael McKeon episode, which he loved. So he'll get to this eventually. And Danny, when you get to this, come see me or Goldie or JC, and we'll give you just a quick lesson and ha ha <laughs> so that the world can be That's right great. again. Yes. Anyway, that was that was my ha ha funny moment one. with Danny. That's nice. Goldie, I, I want to present you with something this week. This is not funny. Yeah, I just want to get your reaction to sure. this. This is actually more on the emotional end of things. Okay. Okay. So, you know, one of my kids has uh, COVID and mm -hmm. it caused her to miss a whole birthday weekend at Disneyland that one of oh. her friends was going to do. Oh. And she'd been looking forward to this for months. Yeah. So I said to my wife, she was really upset. And I said to my wife, there was, we've been buying a holiday gift. And I said, let's just give her this one gift and sort of say like, Hey, I know you're having a bad weekend, but here's this thing. And, you know, we were going to give it to you later, but we just want to cheer you up and whatever. And it's so sweet. I went through this whole mental rigmarole because the way I was raised, it would have been like, life's tough. You know, there, it would have been <laughs> yeah. like turned into a lesson. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like, no, we can't show her. We, she's got to learn some resilience here. And then, right. you know, these bad things happen. And then, it, like, it might have even gone to, like, what do you think those kids in Gaza are going through? Right? <laughs> right, right, like, right, watch right. the news. Are you aware <laughs> right. of all in the world? And you're just having to lie down in your bed. And, and, like, you know, then I was starting to go. And then, like, giving her something now, I'm spoiled. I'm, I'm, and and it, the whole thing just made me realize. It's like 
and I think this is going to help me going forward. You're parenting yourself. Yes. Like, yeah. You are, you're the child. Oh. And you're going, I, I'm going like, oh, wouldn't it have been nice if in these situations someone just said, hey, I know it doesn't make sense, but uh, here's a gift for nothing. Yeah. yeah. For no reason. Yeah. And this is what Feel makes better. me a bad dog owner is sometimes I'm like, just give them a treat. There's nothing attached to it. It's yeah. not like sit or stay off the counter. Like, so can it just be like a nice thing that rolls into your life with right. no explanation? Because it makes them and happy. Then, and, you know, and then you start to go to the area of like, well, now are you spoiling this person? Because they're just getting rewards for nothing. And they're not learning that like you have to suffer. And I just wanted to get your reaction to like, <laughs> how do you think you you handle this well i mean i'm i'm a i'm i'm a bad person to ask this because i would absolutely give the gift me too and i think that i was raised differently than you goldie where i was spoiled by my mom constantly but is Uh, it spoiled like is that a real thing well it it, i will say it is and it, it is it is a real thing but here's the thing i would still do it anyway because i think that you have such a struggle, as I could see on your face, even talking about it, about stuff like this, that it's good for you to lean towards the gift side. Because I think that, as you stated, you have a natural instinct to lean the other way because of the way that you were raised. Now, I have a natural instinct to overgive gifts. And I think that I was overgiven gifts uh, as a child. And I have become an adult who, you know, has trouble making doctor's appointments. Like I can't take care of myself in a weird way because yeah, I like, I feel like I'm well, ready. Does it lessen your enjoyment of receiving the gifts? Say. Not at all. Not at all. No, still love yeah. that. Still love giving and receiving gifts. It's a love language for me. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I want to at this point say that you gave me an incredible gift last week. Oh, that was fun. <laughs> and, was and just incredible. let our listeners know that because this, it really was. It was a perfect gift, which was, it was a vintage style boombox, and basically all of the David Lee Roth Van Halen on cassette. Yes. Yes. Which listening to it was, you know, if you've heard, if you're an English major and you've heard of Proust's Madeleine, (laughs) sort of famous thing in literature where Madame Bovary takes one bite of a cookie and she's transported back into her youth. It was... (laughs) a sonic madeline where i put it back on i'm in my room i've just biked home from the record store i've unwrapped the 1984 cassette and i'm hearing you know all these things for the first time so i do want to thank you for that publicly yeah just it's really that, thoughtful like, you you are good at it because when i gave my daughter the thing and i've had this a couple times now is I'm crying so much from whatever it is I'm feeling. And I, it, and I, it's the same way if I give my wife something like really nice, like when I bought her like a really nice piece of jewelry is somehow I'm, I'm crying. And I'm like, yeah. I mean, what a dipshit. No, <laughs> no, it's <laughs> sweet. No, I wonder. Like, this is so great of me. I'm so crying. No, here's what I think. When you give your daughter a gift when she's feeling down or feeling sad, it's not a, I think there are a couple of things happening. You're making her happy in a moment that you remember not feeling happiness. And then the other thing is outside of that, you are creating a memory for her 
about her dad or her parents when she was feeling down, that she will remember and carry into adulthood and into her relationships. And it just creates a feeling of, I was loved, I felt loved from my parents, regardless if it's a gift, it's, it's the sentiment and where you're giving it from. So maybe I'm glad to, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, the other aspect of this is, is then you, you know, am I creating a more materialistic person? And then, and then you go, what difference does it make? Like we're all headed to just the worst cosmic fate imaginable, which is just, (laughs) you know, death, non-existence and the annihilation of the planet. And so you go, so this person had over the course of their life, 86 extra things that they didn't yeah. need. Right. So. Uh, exactly. I mean, I think that's I, me I, I, I love that you did that for her. Yeah. I love that. I love picturing it all. And, you know, I agree with JC. It was a moment where especially missing the Disney trip for a kid. That's such a bummer. That's such a bummer. And And to have like just a little kindness, a little joy spread into that moment, I think is, is. Thank you. And I'll also say this, don't, don't ever test your kids for COVID. (laughs) Just (laughs) they have a cold. (laughs) (laughs) Who can tell now? That's a a great point. That's a great point. Um, all right. Well, now we're gonna we're gonna bring out our guest who is is brave enough to do Johnny's yeah. with us. Um, and uh, here we go. Oh, folks, friends, we are excited today because our guest. This is the soft intro. Our guest, John Beckerman of Letterman fame, Dave mm-hmm. Letterman, uh, is is on the show. We're gonna talk to him in a little bit. We're excited for that. But we're even more excited because delve into the shadows of the mind. With Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Like a true writer, like a non-coward, John Beckerman has agreed to do a little something that we call Johnny Jokes. Whoa, from wherever the hell we are, here's Johnny. Yes. I'm right. trying to keep it down because I'm in a hotel room. Yeah, I got great. it. That was good. Good subdued <laughs> yeah. energy. Uh, all right. Imagine uh, Ed McMahon in a very small hotel room. With thin <laughs> yes. Walls. It's perfect. Yes. Um, okay. Johnny number one, John Beckerman, take right, it John. away. All right. These may be a little bit more like Johnny's sentences, but uh, <laughs> uh, we get those too. <laughs> all, right. all right. So uh, Taylor Swift has been named Time Magazine's Person of the Year, inspiring millions of her young fans all around the world to say, what is Time Magazine? 
In other music news, Darius Rucker, also known as Hootie, just got his own star on Hollywood Boulevard. And this is sweet. His former bandmates, the Blowfish, are able to see it from their nearby tent encampment. (laughs) (laughs) Not going well. No. Um, Oh, God. All right. So the president of you. Wait a second. How did he get a star? He paid for it. (laughs) That's really, that's really weird. (laughs) I think he's a big country star now. He is. I think he like converted. He He did convert. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know what? So, I'll let uh, it slide. You can have a on a sidewalk. I take it back. <laughs> the president of UPenn has resigned in the wake of her congressional testimony on campus anti-Semitism. Critics were outraged by her incomplete answers, her mealy-mouthed uh, legal speak, and her puzzling decision to show up wearing a Bradley Cooper maestro nose. Ah, <laughs> we got some overlap here. I love that. Oh boy. <laughs> And finally, Salt Lake City was selected as the 2034 host of the Winter Olympics. But don't feel bad, my fellow Angelinos, because Los Angeles was just named the permanent host of the Summer Ozempics. Uh, <laughs> is, that, is that a joke? Or is that just words sound the same? Uh, <laughs> no, these are great. I don't know. <laughs> yes. Woo! Well done. Very oh, good. my God. We'll, we'll, we'll get into talking about um, Letterman's monologues later, but that was yeah. very funny. Sure. Thank you for, great job. for braving <laughs> that. Yeah. I know. Listen to how a non-expert does it. Okay. <laughs> Some overlap here. UPenn president Liz McGill has been forced to resign after a disastrous hearing before Congress. Uh, But don't feel too bad for Liz. Uh, She was instantly snapped up as a practice squad QB for the New York Jets. (laughs) New York Jets, they need quarterbacks. They don't, Uh, though. They uh, they do. They do. Yeah, they're depleted. I know when that joke was written before last Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) Correct, sir. You are correct. Let's not get too into this. Uh, A criminal enterprise in Italy has been charged with exporting non-virgin olive oil while attempting to pass it off as extra virgin. Uh, Inspectors were suspicious when they saw the olive oil being tag-teamed by Popeye and Bluto. (laughs) Popeye and Bluto. Good comedy word. Took the gentlemanly way out of that joke. That could have been way worse. Way worse. I know. I had to, like, Johnny it a little bit. But he would never even say that. Tag-teamed would never come out of Johnny's mouth. Uh, The FDA has announced that they are close to approving a drug that will allow dogs to live longer. Good. There's nothing the owner of a 15-year-old dog wants more than three more years of hell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm living that right now. Speaking from experience. And finally, well, the Golden Globe nominations are out, and Bradley Cooper's Maestro received several. Experts feel that while Oppenheimer and Barbie are the clear favorites, Maestro could win by a nose. (laughs) Very easy one. All right. Johnny three. Here we go. Well, former President Trump currently leads Joe Biden 49 to 44 percent in the pivotal swing states of Georgia and Michigan. 
pundits cautioned Biden could continue to fall and also lose ground in the polls. Ah. <laughs> We've done this formula before. <laughs> Soft start. <laughs> it's my Time Magazine. Jabbing okay. your way in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> friendly fire. <laughs> After a disastrous appearance on Capitol Hill, where she appeared to defend anti-Semitic speech, Jewish groups and donors forced UPenn President Liz McGill to resign. Oh, that'll make her like Jews. <laughs> <laughs> During a live event with Alex Jones and Elon Musk, controversial Republican candidate Vivek Ramaswamy was caught on a hot mic using the bathroom. The incident revealed he's also full of piss. Uh, <laughs> yes. Ramaswamy. That's great. Uh, like Ramaswamy. Jokes. That's a very joke. <laughs> yes, yeah. totally. totally. Joke a night about Like a car neck. <laughs> uh, former Representative George Santos is now making big bucks on Cameo. Yes, for just $600, he'll take your money and not make you a Cameo. <laughs> <I'll bet. laughs> and finally, <clears throat> according to OnlyFans, there are now more than 3 million people in the United States making amateur pornography. Wow. Say what you want, but after the last eight years, I think it's nice the country is finally all pulling together. Yeah. <laughs> we got through john what, what was Holy. that like for you stepping into that world <laughs> oh yeah it was it was weird i i the truth is i have never uh written those particular kind of jokes believe it or not oh, i okay. it was the one thing i didn't do at letterman ever i think i tried there was one day where i was like i've never done this i'm going to try and i sat down and tried to write a page of them and i just jammed up and i was just like i I don't know if I can do this. I don't know why. Because I loved writing like top 10 jokes was like my favorite thing to write. I love writing just pure jokes where it's like, can you make a joke out of this? I yeah. love That's that. Cool. But I, I, I think I was just intimidated by the monologue because there were writers who uh, pretty much did only that. And, you know, I, I think maybe I just, it was one place where I, I didn't feel comfortable. Well, anyone uh, so who only was, does weird. that, they're all insane, right? <laughs> yeah. Like they're like drummers yes. or something where you kind of go, they're all a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> I love his drummer. It was a different kind of writer. It tended to be people with stand-up experience, which I don't have. And yeah, I, I don't know. I just I just never got into that ring. So it was exciting to finally do it. Like yeah, I don't I don't years later. I don't have stand-up experience either. I did it for three years. Um <laughs> Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. But let me let me give it, get this out of the way. So we're, we're talking with uh, John Beckerman here, who was brave enough to come into Johnny Jokes with us. So John Beckerman was a longtime writer at Letterman, uh, created the show Ed, among other things. Co-created, yes. Co-created. Okay, well, I wanted to screw your other creator because fuck, <laughs> fuck, that, fuck that guy, I'm presuming. I'm presuming it was a guy because of the era. Um, it was a guy. Yes, and, and uh, you've worked on many projects with Rob Burnett. So, John Beckerman, right. thank you so much for coming to talk with us today. We were very excited. Your name, as I said to you before we got on air, just your name gave me a sort of 1990s angst that I hadn't experienced in quite a while. And it felt, you know, it actually made me feel young briefly because your name, my brand 1990s angst. Your name is just when I, when I heard it, right. When I heard your name, I just instantly thought, Oh my God, I got to get my, my letterman packet together. Is my letterman. I got to do, I need more monologue top tens. Is that top 10 any good? Did you do a letterman packet ever? I did. Yes, I did a letterman packet. And it's funny. When would that have been? That would have been. No, no, no. That would have been, let me see. I want to say 1996. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. No, no. But the thing is, I, I, I reread it. Uh, I had the, the horrible experience of rereading it not too Did long ago. Did you have ago. to downgrade your computer to open it? <laughs> Uh, no, it was something that I had a hard copy of. Oh, wow. box, okay. That's cool. And it was awful. So I, don't, I, I hold no ill will towards you because whatever I wanted to do at that moment in life, I was clearly not even close to ready. So, uh, but, but you have, were always sort of an aspirational figure to those of us coming up in the comedy world at that time. But well, talk- the, the first thing I noticed when I, when I looked you up, honestly, was that you're only three years older than we are, and yet you're so much more successful. <laughs> no, no. I think that there might have been a time you could have said that, but uh, life is long. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky, yeah. <laughs> well, so, so John, we, we talked a little bit before you came on. So you grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, yes. What, what was that? I mean, did you grow up knowing that this was something you wanted to be a comedy writer? What, no, what, what, no, how did, no. how did you grow up there? What were you thinking of doing when you got older? I, uh, so I grew up a pretty nerdy academic, um, very unathletic kid in Pittsburgh, which is not a great place for that particular combination <laughs> of uh, qualities, right. but I got really into comedy just as a fan and you know loved all the things you'd expect i would have loved like monty python and uh why is that the only thing i can think of (laughs) (laughs) well that's a good old Um, event you know or snl i guess uh just the usual things um but no i never would have thought of doing it for a living i did although i guess this is related i did want to be a cartoonist and that was something that i got really into as a kind of preteen and teenager and you know, did that for like the school paper and that sort of thing and tried to be satirical. Um, (laughs) Take down the establishment. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I really got kind of, I geeked out on, you know, getting the right pens to draw cartoons and, you know, aspired to be like, you know, mad magazine at the time was even still kind of a thing. And I loved that. And I wanted to be one of those guys. I loved but, mad magazine. And too. I, now that you put that together, 
the snappy comeback. Snappy Answer, answers yeah. to stupid, stupid comeback. questions. The stupid questions. That feels very proto Letterman. Yeah, that's true. It does. Um, yeah, Al Jaffe was incredible. He just passed away, I think, like this year. Yeah. With you know, the FDA says with the right food, he could have had three more years of life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but so so do you pu- you publish the these these cartoons got put in your school paper? Yeah, you know, I I just did what nerdy kids do and um and I think I uh, I wanted to be some sort of scientist probably. I was really into physics, I liked math, I was like one of those kids. And then the the whole comedy writing thing happened at you'll never believe this the harvard lampoon so (laughs) turns out there's this this publication where uh you know it inspires a lot of people to become comedy writers but that is you know sorry boringly that is uh my story is that i i did really well in high school i got into harvard i went there and um upon discovering the lampoon i immediately abandoned all academic efforts and dedicated uh, the next four years to cartooning and writing and so you didn't, out. it sounds like you didn't know about it going in like you just walked by a table on activities day or something <laughs> it, it's it's not quite that I there was I guess I did the uh, you know I, I went around with uh, my dad visiting colleges um, the way a lot of kids do and I saw it and you know it has they have a castle <laughs> which sounds super obnoxious and is but like it's incredible it's crazy you know and I saw this thing and we went to the out of town news uh which is the little newsstand at uh Harvard Square like right by the t-stop I don't think it's there anymore but uh and I saw the lampoon was on sale there and I was like wow that's so cool and I bought a copy I don't think I understood any of the (laughs) the (laughs) in it but I you know, it just seemed amazing. And so I started trying to get on staff there as soon as I got to school and succeeded the how spring you, of my freshman year. How do you get into the Lampoon? It's ridiculous. It's super competitive. And basically, you get in by submitting pieces. So I thought at the time that for some reason, I thought I would have an edge as an artist rather than a writer, probably because I had never attempted to write comedy before, really. (laughs) And I had, you know, drawn cartoons. And so it's funny because the other people maybe like wrote comedy twice when they were 16. You know, right. but it's funny that right. you're you like, know I'm this. already so far behind. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's the person who's yeah. done two essays. <laughs> right. Or whatever. Right. Yeah. And and so you uh you basically just start turning stuff in and there's like uh, a couple rounds. So you gotta make it through the first round, then you do a few more pieces, and then they they decide who they want. Um oh. did you go through there with anyone else who went on to to write for uh television? Oh, definitely. I'm sure I'll forget people, but um, you know, one of my best friends was uh, Brian Rich, who unfortunately passed away recently. Uh, yeah, but he, he was a Conan, right? He was. Yeah, he. Look up Brian sometime. Those of you, if you haven't heard the story of how he, when he was going to leave the show to move to LA and work on sitcoms, um, that left an opening on the staff, and so as a prank, he decided to see if he could get his old job under a different name. So he wrote up a submission, a packet, and he got his old job. 
<laughs> and it, I, I won't tell the whole story because it's, you know, it's, it's Brian's story, but uh, he told it on well, a, uh, well, he a can't Conan tell. podcast. He can't tell it. <laughs> well, not anymore, but he did, he did tell it to, uh, to Conan, I Conan. think, or uh, yeah. the people who do one of Conan's podcasts. Um, and yeah, he's brilliant. You know, people like Jeff Schaefer, uh, Alec Berg, uh, Scott Silveri. Wow. Um, I mean, yeah, like I'm, I'm like the least successful person from my, my <laughs> era of the lampoon. It was, it was, uh, it was amazing. Um, uh, who went, who I was with there, uh, and, fantastic people. And do you think you guys were sort of spurred on because you, you came after Conan, um, and to see, I mean, obviously Conan didn't really start doing uh his show until a little after you had graduated but he was already a writer he was already Simpsons. yeah i mean he he was already famous like i think he was famous before he even got a job just he i haven't been around him that much honestly but like he's he's kind of the most entertaining human alive just mm -hmm. you know in person and relentlessly entertaining yeah. If he was like my I said, height, I, I don't think it would work. <laughs> yeah. I'll say that. Um, so much of it is height dominance. Yeah. But he had been he had been elected president of the Lampoon twice, which is something that doesn't really happen. I think somehow as a sophomore he was president and then wow. again as a junior. And like everyone just knew who this guy was and he clearly seemed destined for statistically you know, tall people win elections in a disproportionate <laughs> percentage. <laughs> All right. Leave the tall thing behind. <laughs> but, but was, so I guess I, the, you've answered the question, but it, it, it feels like Conan himself was a real sort of like re-energizing factor at the lampoon because people who have been on here, in fact, our guest uh, last week, Diallo, who, who mm -hmm. was at Harvard, like, the right. lampoon goes through ups and downs. The last two guests. And mm -hmm. it feels like Conan was like an explosive up for the lampoon. That could be. I mean, I wasn't there at the same time as him, but I mean, there's so many people I haven't mentioned that I, I was there along with, like Bill Oakley, um, yeah. who went on to run The Simpsons, who's brilliant. And like, it was more like, or Paul Sims, uh, who's, you know, created news radio and who's, he helped me get hired on Letterman, actually. But he, I guess those people would have been below Conan and overlapped with him, I think. Right. So for me, it was more the next generation. Uh, David X. Cohen, who created Futurama, was a wow. senior when I was a freshman. I mean, it was an incredible group of people. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So you go through Harvard. You're at the Lampoon. How does the Letterman thing develop? The way that happened was I, so it was while I was on the Lampoon that I saw people go on to do uh, comedy writing professionally. And that made me aware that that was a thing, you know, that somebody could do, even like a young person could do. It was even possible to be successful out of college. I mean, I guess a lot of that was just due to the Lampoon. You know, I know uh, it's obviously very challenging to break into the business and, yeah. you know, can be even for people who have gone through uh, the Lampoon. But I saw people going off to do it. I decided to write uh, a Seinfeld spec yes. and uh, an SNL packet and a Letterman packet. And I, at the time, there was no way of knowing anything. It's hard, I think, for people who are coming up now to understand. But like, 
there was no information about anything. Right. Like, there was no way to find out like what, like I remember when I was writing my uh, Seinfeld, I needed to know Elaine's last name. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, the way I ended up finding out was just watching Seinfeld until somebody said <laughs> wow. uh, her last name. And right, then I just, Google it I or... thought, yeah. And I thought, I wonder, it, her last name was Bennis. And I was like, I wonder how you spell that. I had no idea. And I remember spelling it B-E-N-N-I-S when in reality it's B-E-N-E-S. <laughs> and you just, you know, there was no way of finding out information. Right. And <laughs> so I don't know how I found out like where to send these packets or what they were supposed to contain, but somehow I did. Wow. Um, yeah, I guess I never heard anything from SNL. I don't even know if they opened it. Like I, I <laughs> right. got no response at all. Letterman, as I mentioned, uh, Paul Sims had written there um, and in fact was writing there when I first moved to New York. And is this the NBC version or the CBS NBC. Version? NBC. Okay. Uh, yes. And I remember Paul invited me to uh, come watch him edit a remote, which was incredible. Like I just sat in the edit room with him and just, you know, saw what, how you do it. And he also invited me to uh, the 10th anniversary uh, special and I remember his other guest that night was your friend, uh, Rich Appel. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So I guess when I had this submission, Paul uh, very generously offered to help, you know, get it to the right people. And at the time, those people were uh, Steve O'Donnell was the head writer who hired me. And uh, Morty, Robert Morton was the EP. And this all happened. I mean, I was extremely lucky. I don't know what to say. I did not have a hard time breaking in, but this all happened like a year after I graduated. Um, amazing. So in the intervening uh, time, I, I had gotten a couple of those kind of, you know, those New York writing jobs that I'm sure there's equivalent to them today, but at the time it'd be like, yeah, Paramount wants to do some kind of weird game show that's syndicated and they need somebody to write questions. Right. And and so they'd hire very green writers to do yeah. these jobs. And they were incredibly fun jobs. It was fantastic. I, I was once a guest on a series of test shows for an Al Roker game show that was going to be on MSNBC. <laughs> and I won an astounding amount of theoretical money on the show. Like they were like, and you know, our six time champion and returning with, you know, and it was like, I was over 200 grand. Cause I, was, I, I just was like dominating this show. And then it that's never amazing. aired. Amazing. That's, awesome. that's great. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because you, you mentioned those jobs. I wonder, did you, did you f seek out those jobs in backstage? Like people used to do. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> no, I, so this was another funny thing. I mean, it's the lampoon again. Um, I was a senior in college, the national lampoon, which people may know, you know, grew out of the Harvard lampoon um, was started by young writers who had uh, come from there. Um, and at the time, I mean, it, it, you know, it wasn't what it had been, but it still existed. And the guys running it, 
were Larry Doyle, Ian Maxtone Graham, uh, Chris Marshall and Sam Johnson, all these writers who went on to huge careers. We love Ian. Yes, Ian's listening. Yeah, he's amazing. And these guys, they were doing a a college issue. So they reached out to a bunch of college humor magazines, including the Harvard Lampoon. And I submitted several pieces to them. Just like, I remember one of them was like a, a glossary of college slang. And it was just all this made up, you know, weird things that there wouldn't be slang for like mashed potatoes or whatever. And, um, and they bought a couple pieces from me. And that was the first time I had, you know, sold jokes, sold pieces. And so that was huge for me. And I, I remember, I remember that Ian edited one of my pieces and I remember I had a reference to a movie in it. And he changed the movie to Ice Station Zero, which was like, I guess, an Ian reference that meant nothing to me. But I was like, great. Like, (laughs) I'm sure this is much funnier if you get it than (laughs) whatever it is I had written. And um, yeah, so that was kind of thrilling. And then what happened was when I moved to New York, hoping to get one of these jobs, I heard from Larry Doyle that he he had a an MTV game show and needed writers and the host of the show uh, was Tom Hertz who went on to be a showrunner and uh, you know at the time was a stand up Ian was on the show Sam and Chris were on the show Danny O'Keefe the uh, Seinfeld writer who uh, created Festivus was on the show right um, so you know it was all these people who would go on to uh, big things but we were writing questions it, it was basically the newlywed game for college roommates was the premise awesome. right how well do you know that. your roommate it's a good idea yeah yeah um i also found out that uh down the hall was this other show called you wrote it you watch it and so i'd bump into these guys in the hall <laughs> and the premise of that That's show was nightmare. people <laughs> totally it's like People would write in, like fans would write in stories, and then the cast would act out their stories. Now, what makes it interesting is that these people were the state. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I love (laughs) Um, them. But uh, I didn't know that at the time, and they weren't, (laughs) you know, they weren't, they didn't have their big show uh, that made them, you know, famous yet. So that was like one of their early gigs. And years later, I went on to work with Michael Ian Black on Ed. I was like, yeah, like we were in the same hallway working on these dumb shows. <laughs> and now we're in the same hallway working on this a, other dumb show. It was such a crazy time back then because it, it at the time, it didn't it, you didn't really notice it. But it, looking back on it, it was still like the Wild West, like the 90s mm-hmm. in, in writing. A couple things that uh, I wanted to say off of your answer there. First of all, before we get an angry uh, email from Ian Maxstone yeah. Graham, I believe the movie is called Ice Station Zebra. Oh, did I say zero? Yeah, yes. zebra. See, I so, still don't get the reference. Right. I, I don't know what, what it is. So Ian, Ian, stop typing that email. We, we know what Sorry, it's called. Ian. Um, but uh, also, just a, a funny thing, and, and Goldie, you, you might remember a part of this too. So... My, I think, first paid writing job was uh, my old writing partner and I, before we had ever left New York, we were still there struggling. We got a job 
You remember when Snapple, when you opened a Snapple and there was a little joke under the lid? Yeah. Yes. Like my those. old writing partner and I, we would get 15 bucks for everyone that they picked. And so we would just sit there and write the because they were terrible jokes. They were like, you know, the almost knock knock jokes. So we would just yeah. bang out like a thousand of them oh and try and get some money for that. But Goldie, do you remember um, what's his name? Mark Spiegel. Was that his name? The guy. I think you're right. Yeah, it was Mark Spiegel. And and the and it was right when the internet started, so it's like '96, and he had a site called News Joke, News Joke, <laughs> and he would come around to us, Goldie, and he would he would ask, he he just wanted edgy edgy stuff for news. <laughs> yes. you guys are so edgy. I like he would you say voice. that when we he basically <laughs> what he, he thought he would do was he would form this like database of jokes and sell them a subscription to morning DJs who need okay. jokes. So like we thought, like in my mind, he was like Elon Musk. He was yes. a mogul with <laughs> yeah. a vision who, you know, because he seemed to have his own apartment, which, you know, when you're 23 years old, you're like, that person is incredibly wealthy. They live, they yeah. live by themselves in New York. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so he would pay us, what was it? Was it 15 a joke? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, and and we would because at the time, and I think Goldie, you probably were too. Like I was submitting weekend update jokes because we knew how to fax them in. Fax them in, which is right. Incredible. I don't know if mine ever got read. I never got anything on. It's, and but so then using all parts of the Buffalo, I would just use all the rejected jokes that they didn't take and and give them to Mark Spiegel, oh. and he would just you know head shaking his head. You guys are edgy, man. Edgy. I, I remember because he told us we were edgy so much, and I want edge. And, and, and like we used to joke that he drove a Mercedes with a license plate Edge Dash E. Anyway, yeah. yes. So I'm when so Chris Farley died. The day he died, I was like, I got to get on this and get some jokes to Spiegel. And I wrote like all these jokes about Chris Farley dying and I made like forty five dollars. <laughs> probably ethically, it was like my lowest moment. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> all right, but so, John, getting back to your your Letterman journey. So mm -hmm. you have this help. You get on Letterman, the uh, on uh, the NBC version of Letterman. Right. right the last it. year of NBC. OK, yeah. so now. Describe like what was your first week like there? Did you did you were you terrified or what, yes? What, how was that for you? It was scary. I was uh, yeah. It's like you get there. Um, I I remember I uh, well I went for an interview with Steve O'Donnell and it turned out to be kind of a a formality. I think he had already decided to hire me and he just right. probably wanted to make sure I wasn't, you know, a total weirdo. And so he offered me the job and on the way out, we ran into Dave and, uh, Steve introduced me to Dave and Dave just said, get your shirt pressed and got in the <laughs> elevator and, and disappeared. Awesome. And, uh... um, and, and were you in your mind, like that was serious and I need to wear a pressed shirt or that was like, some no, sort of I knew ironic, him. snappy answer to a stupid question that wasn't asked. <laughs> no, I knew I knew he was tooling on me, and and you know, and it, I found it initially to be uh, just extremely intimidating. Um, yeah. You know, I was the youngest person there. The room was very, uh, I found to be very chilly at first. Uh, there was. Yeah, it, 
it was it was just tough. I mean, I, I'm sure you've been in rooms very much like it. Uh, yeah. You know, if you said something that was bad, it was rough. Like it just was, you know, it was terrible. I mean, I, I'm not saying it was a, it, I ended up loving nearly all of these people, I would say, but it was, it was very, very scary. And I, I tend to be a pretty, um, uh, I have social anxiety. I'm pretty shy. I tend to be quiet. Like I clam up in situations where I'm anxious and I was really quiet for a while in there. I think, um, yeah. Pieces that were group written, I was not good at because I was so in my head and afraid to speak. And, you know, it, it, it just was very intimidating. Um, I remember we used to write these, uh, we called them footage quizzes. And there'd be these pieces where uh, the director and camera guy would go out and just shoot street footage in New York. And there'd be like a theme. So it'd be like, you know, Christmas time in the city or something. And then you'd write these uh, jokes that had the format of a quiz. So it'd be like, you know, this savvy New Yorker is A, set up, B, set up, C, punchline. Right. Um, and so we'd write these together in the room and somebody had to operate the tape machine, which was a three quarter inch tape machine, which oh, maybe wow. you guys are Yeah, I remember it. those. Yeah. yeah. That's like and driving then, a go-kart on ice. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the new guy would have to operate the tape machine. And that gave me something to do where I wouldn't have to actually speak. And, you know, luckily there were pieces that you would write in your office by yourself. And that was where I managed, I think, to start making myself useful. Um, you know, whether it was top tens or coming up with remote ideas or desk pieces or, you know, all the stuff of talk shows. But yeah, I'd say it took me a little while. I, uh, Rob Burnett became the head writer, uh, like, two weeks into my time at the show. He, he couldn't have and, been that much older than you either at the time, right? He's, I believe he's seven years older than oh, me. Okay. Sorry, Rob. <laughs> he, he was an intern at Letterman. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, he rose up from being an wow. intern. Um, he wasn't, he was not a, a writer's intern initially. He uh, was in the talent department and he, yeah, he kind of had every job you could have there. Wow. But by the time I was starting, uh, it was the end of, as it turned out, Steve O'Donnell's term as head writer, which was like eight years and incredibly accomplished run, a crazy, amazing run as head writer. And then Rob took the baton and wow. he and I uh, fairly quickly developed a pretty good rapport and working relationship. And so it got to be where, you know, he'd, he'd kind of rely on me and a couple of the other writers to get together in, in a room, you know, and figure out what we were going to do um, right. when things got dire, which was quite often. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You bring up something interesting there at the beginning of that answer where, okay, you get to Letterman, uh, the room can be a little chilly. You're, you have your own social anxiety issues. So mm -hmm. you're a little more quiet say mm -hmm. but then you said that you discovered when you went into your own office and closed the door you were able to generate uh material a little more freely which i think a lot yeah. of writers can can relate to that 
Now, is that being bad at sex, but good at masturbation? Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. <laughs> Great analogy. Um, but wow. so is that is, is that something that, that carried forward like into your career? Like, did you always do your best work behind a closed door or were you able to overcome this? Social I've gotten better. Yeah. I mean, you can't tell from this interview, but I've, I've gotten better at it. I think um, <laughs> I think, you know people's brains handle stuff differently. I, I can feel it almost physically when I go from being kind of self-conscious to just thinking out loud and being able to do the kind of work I would do by myself, but do it in public or do it, you know, with friends or whatever. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's practice and it's confidence. It's like, all right, I've been here a while. I've written things people like, I deserve to be here, I guess, yeah. a little bit, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know that it ever became the thing I was best at. I think there were, there were always people who in the room were just spontaneously super funny and didn't seem self-conscious at all. And I think I always did my best work when, you know, I don't want to sound like Rick Rubin talking about like creativity or something, but like, <laughs> you, know, you know, that feeling of flow or of being in the yeah, zone. Sure. Yeah. Um, I don't know that I've ever felt that when there's somebody else in the room, but this, this whole time, were you talking to Dave routinely at all? Or was he just off on his own? And it was sort of like, because when I was an intern at Conan and Letterman came back as a guest, <clears throat> literally, we were told, don't make eye contact with him. And I was like, oh, yeah. okay. And you don't know if that's coming from him ever or like the people around him or whatever. But I, it indicates to me a personality that may not have been super involved on a day-to-day -day basis with the writers. That's true. He, yeah, there was kind of a fabled earlier era that was before my time when I think the writers were more of his peers, like closer to him in age. And, you know, he, I think he spent more time with the group of writers. By the time I got there, it would more be that the head writer would kind of be an emissary to Dave's office. And then my first real, uh, I mean, you, you know, you'd sometimes go in, I, I guess if you had a piece on tape to show him, you'd go in, the head writer would bring you in so that you'd have to own it kind of. But the, the first time I had prolonged contact with him was I got sent on my first remote. And the, <laughs> I believe the premise of the remote was Dave's going to help Marv Albert buy a suit. <laughs> um, so I found myself, you know, sitting next to David Letterman in a van going to Barney's or something. And that could not have been more terrifying. You know, it was right. like I was sitting next to like the Lincoln Memorial or something. Right. <laughs> just like trying not to stare at him or say yeah. anything idiotic. I probably didn't say a word. And uh, even during the remote, I, I probably had a clipboard with a bunch of jokes that the writers had contributed. And I, you know, just stammer, like, you know, maybe here you could say, you know, like try to interject some joke, but Dave knew it was my first time and he just did his job. He just did the remote, you know, right. he doesn't, he doesn't need me, right. <laughs> um, but that was the first time I was really in the thick of it. And then, you know, a couple years later, I was, I myself was head writer along with Donick uh, Carey, who, 
um, I guess I haven't mentioned yet, but who is one of the funniest, best writers I've ever worked with. And yeah, he and I <laughs> took the job um, when Rob Burnett left to uh, do a sitcom with Bonnie Hunt. And things quickly, turns out it's really fun to be the guy who's like doing well as a writer and can kind of sit in the back of the room with his feet up and like sort of tool on the head writer a little bit and like you know like it's not my problem you know like you know and then suddenly you're given more responsibility and it's you and you're the one you know calling dave to pitch him jokes when he's in the car driving back to connecticut each night and you're the one going into his office in the morning and you're the one showing him, you know, tapes and stuff. It's, it's a whole, it's, it's, it's an entirely different experience. I, I think like, yeah, it I, sucks. <laughs> I love being a, I mean, I've almost intentionally, I call it going back into my wheelchair at the end of awakenings uh, <laughs> where uh, I, it's like, I'm back where I was sort of no one expects me to catch the ball anymore or dance and I can just sort of happily eat my meal at my chair and you know say my jokes yeah um, it's the best oh that's such a that's but you a don't fun. realize because the whole time you're doing it you're going I want that job because yeah. then I could determine mm-hmm. what's in the show and they're not pitching my stuff correctly to Dave and and then you have it for like like everyone should be rotated in that job for one day <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I, I absolutely, I mean, that job, you know, and I was fortunate to get it. Um, I think I was too young, frankly. Um, you know, people have done it certainly at that age or younger, but I think for me as a guy, I was too young. I just don't think I had how old were you? The, uh, I was, uh, I want to say like 26. Um, wow. yeah, that's, weird. yeah. Uh, you know, and again, it was me and Donick doing it together we were both about the same age and young and like terrified <laughs> and uh, you know, having to, to manage writers that were older and more experienced and, mm-hmm. you know, who definitely had a little bit of the attitude that I think I had as a writer, which is just, well, it ultimately isn't my problem. Like I'm, you know, yeah, I think those, those were some of the, the mentally unhealthiest years of my entire life. Absolutely. Well, and, and now, because you were uh, in this job at, at what I consider probably the, the most interesting point in late night history, which was the, mm-hmm. the Jay Dave Tonight Show uh, situation. Yeah. So w- what do you remember from, from that whole situation? And, and, and did, that, did that bleed into your work or was it kind of just something that was being handled at another level and you just did whatever, whatever came your way? Well, uh, so at first it was, you know, I was there when uh, NBC was deciding who was going to get The Tonight Show. And the writers and I would hear nothing. You know, there'd be rumors, um, you know, there was a lot of intrigue about it at the office, but I wouldn't say it affected my job day to day. Can I ask, did you want it to happen? Um, Yeah. I mean, I... I think, you know, in my mind, uh, yeah, it would be amazing if Dave got the Tonight Show and I'd go work on that. Yeah, sure. Sure. I wanted it to happen. I mean, I, I can't remember if I thought 
at the time, like, oh, I like working for the hip, you know, 1230 show as opposed to 1130. I'm not sure if that was a calculation I would make. It was more just like, I want to stay employed. I love it here. I want to keep doing this. Yeah. So I didn't want the show to end was probably what I was thinking or something like that. Then when everything shook out the way it did and Dave got uh, 11.30 on CBS, the, the time that we spent when the show was dark, you know, late night ended and there was now a window of months before late show was going to begin was maybe the most fun I've had creatively working on anything because we were figuring out what the show was going to be. And we were uh, shooting and banking all of these remotes. And I just remember it as uh, just a really exciting and invigorating uh, time to be creating stuff. And then we came on and people loved it. And that was thrilling, you know, and I had remotes on the show and I had pieces and I felt like I was part of something incredible. And yeah, we just, we felt like, we had done it like what we set out to do. And I can't credit uh, Rob Burnett enough for that, honestly, because he, he was the head writer then. And he, he was able to kind of see ahead in a way that I can't to this day, I can't see like two days in front of me. Um, I can't plan. I have to have somebody tell me, just make me a schedule and tell me what to do because my brain locks up. If I try to think about, Ah, uh, and then, you know, two months from now, we'll do that, like, forget it, you know, but he, he had a real idea of what the show ought to be. And we did it and people loved it. Then things that were completely out of our control, and I guess some that, you know, were arguably in our control started happening. The biggest thing was, and I don't think this got enough attention at a time at the time, but like, CBS's primetime started to suffer and NBC started to thrive. And if you look at the graphs and charts, which I saw all the time during these years, you see that at least back then, you know, if people are watching your network at 10 o'clock and then they're staying for the local news and then they're, they're just not changing the channel. They're watching whatever late night show right. comes on that, that channel. And CBS started to get buried and it really hurt uh, the Letterman show. But then, you know, that got attributed to creative stuff. And, you know, Jay had Hugh Grant on, which was seen as this big, um, yeah. big deal. What were you thinking? Hey, yeah. <laughs> a big question, I remember, that like turned the whole thing. Yeah. That's right. And, and you know, <laughs> maybe in a little way it did. But the fact is, I think there were just these big tidal forces that, you know, kind of had nothing to do with us. But, you, you know, who can say? I mean, I well, think it's also Jay, in, in yeah. retrospect, like with age or like I would I would kind of go not being in the situation. Like, What difference does it make? Who's getting a couple more people to watch? Like they're both. Yeah. They're both self-sustaining corporations. So who cares? Like, it's not like one's fucking up and one's amazing. It's like more people, but that doesn't. And I feel like Letterman, when you see him now, seems to have come around to like, what was mm -hmm. I doing? But that I also don't put it past him that that's also an act. Yeah, I I can't speak for him today, but I know at the time it was of enormous concern to everybody. Yes. It, like we had to be number one. And I, I agree with you. I don't understand why 
like if two shows are making tons of money selling, mm-hmm. you know, commercials and getting millions of viewers, I don't know why it's important if one of them had a hundred thousand more viewers than the others, <laughs> yeah. both viable products, <laughs> but like, it all I can say is it mattered enormously, and I, I think it caused a lot of uh, of just you know really bad vibes around the show and the creative process of it. And it yeah, suddenly things were not nearly as much fun. I would say. Well, that it's such an interesting thing to to dive into and think about because I mean, obviously, as you know, as as comedy fans and uh, you know, I guess comedy nerds. Everybody loved Letterman, you know, yes. Letterman was the guy. And and listen, I, I loved Leno as a guest host on Carson. Like when he would mm-hmm. come on, I remember watching and thinking like, this guy's really funny. I really like him. But then when it came down to, okay, choose Jay or Dave, like there was no, that was a split second decision. Like Dave was so much cooler, so much funnier to me personally. And I always kind of look back like, you know, we are where we are in this country now and it's kind of depressing. But I do look at the Letterman-Leno sort of choice as an early canary in the coal mine for how this country was going to move. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe everybody's picking Leno over this other guy who is so much cooler and funnier and smarter and uh, did, did you guys have a sense when you were at the show like well we're definitely cooler yes <laughs> <laughs> i mean sure i mean uh, you know uh look i know i know great writers who wrote for jay uh sure. and jay i think you know like you said he was great and i remember his guest appearances on uh late night you know, Dave's NBC show were legendary, people loved. And then, yeah, look, I mean, I think in a way it's weird that Dave ever beat Jay. Like, to me, that's the anomaly. Not that Jay went on to overtake him in the ratings. It was just bizarre that there was a period of even a couple of years where something like, somebody like David Letterman could beat Jay Leno. Right. You know, uh, and I, I agree with you about kind of a bellwether of sort of a split in the country. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right about that. God, such an interesting time. So, okay. So you lived through that. And I also read that you, like Goldie and I, had the quote unquote privilege of writing for the Oscars. <laughs> oh yeah. So oh, so this was a famous uh Oscars that 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 Dave hosted with the Uma Oprah uh right. joke. And I feel right. like at the at the time whereas now I think back on that and I'm like, "Oh my god, we would be so lucky to have Letterman hosting the Oscars all the time." At the time, people were like, "Oh, he did a bad job." No, can I step I in? Know. And yes. I don't want to step on your expertise. But there and I did Rob Burnett write an article about this. I've read an article about this maybe a year ago that was just about how like at the time it wasn't viewed as a disaster. It was viewed as fine. And that Dave harped on it so much that then in retrospect, people were like, it was a disaster, but it was actually initially viewed as very positive. What are your memories of that? Not that. Um, (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I, although I, you know, I'm, the part that rings true to me is that Dave hammered himself for months and years afterwards. And I think that cemented the idea that it was this legendary, you know, horrible thing. I 
I know that um, I, I think, I guess I think what, uh, what Dave got um, dinged for a bit was not embracing the Oscars for whatever it is that it's supposed to be. And instead kind of doing his show, but on the Oscars, right. You know, I think, uh, I don't know if Dave would agree with this, but I, I remember like, I wasn't there by the way, I should say. Okay. So I did contribute to the material that he did on the Oscars, but we were doing a week of travel shows in London that was coming up. And so I actually was in London to like scout and do shoot stuff. And Dave was, uh, I think Dave pretty much came right to London after doing the Oscars so we could shoot stuff for that week of shows. And so I watched the Oscars at some weird time of night uh, from a London hotel room. And I remember feeling that he, he seemed off his game a little bit from the beginning, which is not a thing is a thing I almost would never say about David Letterman. Like he's, you know, I, I could feel something was off. Right. And I think maybe the crowd felt it and the Uma Oprah thing sort of didn't exactly work. You know, (laughs) not that that was the reason the night went off, but I think there was just something a little sweaty about the way things were going in that room. I don't know why. Um, and then I think some of the pieces played well and I think we're really good, honestly, like, you know, our pre-edited stuff that we did, I think was great. Yeah. And I think worked, you know, but, but I, and I, and his monologue was good too. I think I remember he had at the time there was the movie eat, drink, man, woman. Um, yeah, this is a great joke. And Dave had the joke of like, you know, isn't that how, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger asked out Maria Schreiber for their first date, <laughs> which is like, that's a perfect Johnny joke or amazing. You know, yes. Oscar joke or what have you. Um, yeah. So he, you know, I, there's just something off about it. I think it was a little bit of that weird thing of like, oh, it's the guy from New York who's making fun of Hollywood and isn't yes. really part of it. And, you know, mm. people want kind of the Billy Crystal, like, I love Hollywood. I embrace it. I'm part of it. I'm singing and dancing. And Dave had that, you know, removed uh, attitude toward it all. So, yeah, yeah. yeah I remember still, it being a bummer. Um, well, we we had a similar <laughs> we had a similar disappointing Oscars experience. So, on, I would say on a lesser scale, like it was, it seemed like it was much more important somehow when 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 Dave hosted it. But um, mm-hmm. okay, so. Now let's talk about, so you, you're at Letterman, it goes to CBS. Right. How many more years before you make the decision to go and do something else? So what happened was, uh, as I mentioned, um, Rob, who he and I had become very close and he went off to um, do a show with Bonnie Hunt and that didn't, excuse me, end up lasting very long. So he came back and he asked me if I wanted to develop with him. And so I was still sort of at Letterman, but I kind of had this thing on the side of developing a sitcom with Rob under the umbrella of Worldwide Pants, Dave's company. And this, that was the process <clears throat> that ended up with becoming the show, Ed. It started, we were developing it as a half hour sitcom. 
and I, I think we like even got into trying to cast it and long story short, it all got interrupted and I ended up coming back to be head writer again for another year. And that, that was actually when Rob took over as EP from Morty. So it was suddenly like, oh yeah, we can't go off and do a sitcom. Um, right. Rob's going to run Letterman. And he was like, will you do this with me? You know, while I'm starting this out and like, you know, and I, I said, yes, even though I was, it was a job that I really did not enjoy. Uh, right. But I, I did that. And I guess, you know, it was a much longer development process than most things. We, you know, at the time, uh, Letterman was just such a powerful person at the network that I think the network would buy kind of any pitch, you know, within reason from us. We pitched Ed to Les Moonves and he bought it, even though like, I think the pitch was not anything like what they were doing or buying. (laughs) We made a, at some point it evolved into an hour long uh, dramedy. We shot a pilot for it for CBS, which again, how that got ordered to pilot, like, I don't, I just don't think it was the kind of show they would have done. And was that your first time on a sort of sitcom or set, like, that wasn't yes. a talk show? Wow. It, yes, absolutely. I had never, I always wanted to write stuff like that. I had written a spec or two, but developing that show was my first experience. I had not been in a sitcom writer's room or an hour writer's room, and like I say, I attribute all of this to the power of Letterman at the time. And, you know, I've said this to so many people, like, if you're lucky, there are times in your career where the wind is at your back. And you're one of those people where other people are like, how does, you know, like, why is that? Why did that get picked? Why is, right, is right. their thing? And then there's other times, probably many more times when you're not that person. And you just have to be like, yeah, it's them now that has you know, call it unfair or call it whatever that advantage is. It's just the way the business works. Like things get made and picked for all kinds of reasons. And if you're lucky enough to benefit from that, good for you. And, you know, it all the time I've had in the business now has made me realize like you can't take this stuff that personally in a way, even though you can't help it. It also just there's so many more factors at play than anything to do with you or your abilities or how hard you're working or whatever, that at a certain point, you know, it just, yeah, that's the way it goes. And so at the time I was benefiting from that because uh, Dave was uh, very powerful. And so they'd be like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll shoot this pilot for a couple million bucks. We'll shoot this pilot. And, um, but then a funny thing happened, which was that uh, NBC saw the pilot. Um, and this was Jeff Zucker and yeah. Scott Sasso, and they liked it. And they liked Tom Cavanaugh, the guy we cast in the lead. Um, and People Julie loved, Bowen used to love Tom Cavanaugh. I know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and they wanted they wanted to try the show again, and um, and I think they probably also liked the idea of having Dave's guys come work at NBC. Again, a factor that has nothing to do with me or the quality of my work. But, um, you know, they said, just write it as if you were writing the second episode. And we did that. We, that's where, I mean, I know, you know, the show is not streaming anywhere. So uh, nobody who is younger is aware of it, but it was kind of a 
dramedy, romantic, uh, kind of what they call at the time a soft hour, kind of like Gilmore Girls, but it had a it had a franchise, which is you know when you give your character a job that they can do every week. Um, and right. he was a lawyer, and that wasn't added until the NBC version. They said, "Give him a franchise." And I remember we, wow. Rob and I, made a list of every job, <laughs> and we just sat there like, "Well." Could he be this? No, that'd be weird. And like we were left with a lawyer and we were like, I guess that's why there's so many shows about lawyers. Cause like, you know, and so yeah, he became a lawyer who worked out of a bowling alley. And uh and somehow that we got ordered to series and we did that show for four seasons. We Wow, you know, yeah. we had no idea how to do a show like that, no experience doing it. And suddenly there we were doing it. And uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's how that happened. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if if writers know so little, if you sit down to write down occupations, I'd be like, uh, astronaut? I don't know. <laughs> what else you is there? Say I, Zookeeper? This, this, this is going to sound like I'm kidding, but I'm not. I remember... Um, you know that thing when you're creating something and you just have to figure out like what people's jobs are and like names and stupid stuff. And I remember, so we had the character, uh, Carol, who was like the female lead of the show played by Julie Bowen. And we sat down to figure out what her job was. And I remember butcher being discussed. Uh, <laughs> um, it was just like, I don't know, a butcher. Yeah, and like, everyone's yeah, a butcher. We talked, we talked about it for 10 minutes. <laughs> that happened. Um, uh, 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 that would have been great. That's so yeah. great. Well, and now, so Ed is on for four seasons, and somehow, did, yeah, did this did this bring a whole new set of worries into your life? Because now you're working on a one hour show. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine that you know uh, late night hours can be tough, but hours on a one hour show are very tough. So was yeah. this like all consuming and then every yes. year at pickup time, you're like fingers white knuckled making it through. Are we getting picked up again? That kind of thing. Yes, it was brutally difficult. And, you know, I venture to say more so than Letterman, right. which I wouldn't have believed at the time. But it was um, a couple things made it hard. One, if you do a show like that, you quickly begin to understand why most TV is the way it is, meaning it's about high stakes things. Like we're at a hospital, people are going to die or terrorists are going to come or, you know, all that kind of stuff. Doing a show that is low stakes is punishingly difficult. You have to right. reinvent like the wheel every week. You have to come up with you know, we felt like we were coming up with like a James L. Brooks movie every week or trying to, not that right. we succeeded in that. But like, think of how hard that is. It's crazy. And you can't just be like, all right, you know, this week there's a bomb under the school and they have to right. defuse it. Like you, you don't have those options. So finding the stories was really, really hard. But the other thing that I think made it so difficult was that we were not experienced in working on or running this sort of show. And the writers ended up not being, um, we did not find a way to extract value from them, which was, you know, our fault. I mean, they, they sat in an office down the hall trying to figure out 
how do you write this show? What are they going to want? And we sat in our own office at the other end of the hall, kind of just trying to white knuckle it and get it done. Right. So we took a job that, you know, I mean, I know there's the Aaron Sorkins of the world, but we took a job that is most commonly done by 10 or a dozen people or what have you and did it ourselves largely. Yeah. You know, your your friend Jonathan Groff was there for a season who I think is amazing and one of the funniest, best guys. Awesome. We love him. But like, yeah, I feel like even he, we didn't really bring him in on it. You know, I think Rob and I at the time, we just sort of had this this kind of mind meld from having worked together so much. And we didn't find a way to um, broaden it out and make the show a job that you can do, which I I think even on shows that are creatively interesting and cool, at some point you have to make it a job that other humans can do and know whether they're doing it right. You know, Um, that's part of your job as a showrunner. And it's honestly something that, that I, I had a huge gap in time between show running experiences that I had, you know, back in the two thousands and for the first time, this last year since then. And much of what I thought about during that time was what would I, what would I do differently so that I'm not miserable right. um, if I ever get to do this again? And yeah, like you, it is a job, like it's a creative job, but it's a job and you have to make it a doable job or else you and everyone working for you are going to be very unhappy. And I see that as a thread throughout my whole career, you know, um, when people were, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I wish I was joking. I mean, I've, I've seen and experienced a lot of unhappiness. And I think most often it's because somehow people are not being given the opportunity to succeed, you know, to put it as simply as that, I guess. Well, that's such a great and honest self-assessment of, of something like that. Whereas, you know, most people would look at a show that was on the air for four years in the, in the, you know, arguably the last sort of golden era of television and say, that's a towering success, but you look at it and say, this is what I would have done differently. Yeah. And I am proud of the show and I wish people could see it because I think um, there's people out there who would enjoy it. People would love it. It would get such a niche crowd now that would be all into it streaming. It could be the new suits. I mean, exactly. I wish I'll take it. Yeah. (laughs) No, I mean, I, you know, I'm proud of what we managed to accomplish. I just, the experience of doing it was not, an experience I'd want to have again. Um, I can so, just yeah. kind of picture Letterman telling you like you were, you're talking to him and you're getting into some like pseudo argument and he goes, why don't you go talk to your bowling alley lawyer? Like that feels <laughs> yeah. like a Letterman. <laughs> Maybe he could solve this case. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's, yeah. it's funny. Well, now John, you've been very generous with your time this morning, but you alluded to something in that last answer are you working on something again now? Are you running another room now? It felt like yeah. you were kind of thinking of yeah. uh, better ways to do that. So w- what are you working on coming up? So the show that I'm doing now, uh, which will premiere uh, early in 2024, um, is all I can really tell you. But it's an adaptation of a very funny British sitcom called Friday Night Dinner, which you know has been su- uh, very successful there for quite some time it's the show's not been on in a little while but was a huge hit several years ago there and this version of it is called dinner with the parents 
And it's basically, you know, every week two adult brothers go to their parents for dinner. It is, in fact, Shabbat dinner. Ah. Uh, and, you know, everything that could possibly. And there's a bomb under the house. Does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Episode six. Uh, well, so so where, where, where can, where would we be able to see that in 2024? It will be on Amazon Freebie and I believe Prime Video and whatever Amazon has in 2024. Which might be everything. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, you know, I've been hearing that the, everyone's looking for the hard, funny um, show now. <laughs> that's like the buzzword in development now. Oh, God. But that's, and this show has no redeeming value other than being funny. If it is funny as I hope it is, but it's, it's not... It's not really about anything. It's, you know, it's, it was kind of a miracle. I felt that I got to make the show, you know, I think the value of IP, I guess, is that if something has succeeded elsewhere, then people want to do it. Even if it's something that if you just went out and pitched, they'd be like, no, (laughs) no, but, um, but I, I feel like I got to kind of squeak this one in somehow and, yeah, it's it was the most fun I've had doing anything. We shot it in England um, with an American cast. Strangely enough, uh, Michaela Watkins, Dan Backedall, um, Carol Kane are all in it. Oh, nice. Uh, Rob Delaney is in a few of them. Right. Yeah, and um, Henry Hall and Daniel Thrasher play the the son. Excuse me, but um, but yeah, I tried. I literally sat down and wrote up this is the kind of stories we're going to tell on this show and like made, you know, made it as easy as I could for this writing staff. And, and I think it worked. Um, we had a lot of That's fun awesome. writing it and, That's and making awesome. it. Well, so, so you, you learned your lessons from past experiences and you, you changed something, which is, which is great. <laughs> I try. Um, I try to <laughs> an evolution in your character. Well, uh, John Beckerman, Thank you so much for coming to talk to us today. We always love hearing stories about Letterman. It just, it's so, you know, it's so a part of us. And uh, for those of you listening now, Dinner with the Parents, that's what you said it was called. Dinner with the Parents, next year on Amazon. Look out for it. John Beckerman, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks, John. Thank you all. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, John. Oh, John Beckerman. Wow, it's just so great hearing those stories about Letterman. That just brings us back, Goldie, to our to our nineties struggle in New it's York really City cool. hearing it. Um, but it was nice it's, to it's talk. Like he was getting the life we wanted so bad. So badly. And that's why when he came on and that. when I, you know, I, I still have anxiety when I hear his name because I think like, oh, I should be I want to get where he is. I want to um, steal everything he has and make it what I have. Yeah. I should be making Ed. I should be in that bowling alley. <laughs> Um, anyway, that was great. Thank you, John Beckerman. And now we get to a portion of the show that we like to call Top Five. Top Five. Oh, JC, I heard you specifically in that one. Very good. Oh, yeah. Top Five. Someday I'll write the full song to that, all the yes. verses. That would yeah. be great. Oh, my God. That'd be incredible. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> Blast that in your verses. office. Um, all right, JC, this was your category this week. Start oh, yeah. us off. Okay, Top five words or phrases to yell or scream. Yes. I found it more difficult than I thought it would be. Yeah, it was hard. So uh, number five, 
Yahtzee. Oh, was one of them. <laughs> oh God, that was that was briefly on my list. Okay, we almost had overlap. Okay, number four. Fuck. I <laughs> just sometimes <laughs> yeah. just yelling. Fuck. You fuck. Yes. When you um, have four fours and you don't get a Yahtzee. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yep, that's perfect. Uh, number three. Uh, let's go. I don't know. Like, let's fucking yeah. go. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah, we have overlap. Oh, wow. Um, number two, I randomly do this when I'm like on the street or something. I'll say, Doc, it's about the future. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Uh, that's a I have to future. tell you about the future. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and my number one, which is something that sort of stops any fight with Stu and I, is I will yell, I'm not mad. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. And that's then we a funny start laughing because it. it's like. <laughs> All right, that's good. That's good advice. All right, Goldie, you're all right. You got? Mine is a special children's edition. These are all things you just yell at your kids. Five. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, stop, stop it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Number four, what is your problem? <laughs> Number three, and this is a fun one. Get down, da- get down, get down from it. <laughs> Number two is all right, enough. <laughs> and number one is is and it's rarely deployed. Just shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. Oh, that's great. Um, all right. That's hilarious. my list. Here's uh number five is Ricola. <laughs> that's <laughs> I good. Like to yell out. Uh number four, a little special one for the Superman fans out there. Miss Tess Mocker, which is a great moment in the first Superman. Number three, uh, one Goldie has heard me yell probably too many times. Donahue, which is is the name of the crooked uh, ref from the NBA who got put in jail. So like whenever there's bad officiating at at an NBA game, I just scream out Donahue. And uh, it felt like educated fans knew what I was saying. And now nobody knows. Uh, okay number two gotta gotta go with my 80s chalk get to the chopper (laughs) schwarzenegger line great great. also do get your ass to mars Uh, get your ass to mars get your ass to mars uh and number one goldie overlap i mean uh, jc overlap let's fucking go (laughs) which was of course what tom brady yelled before every patriots game so i love that um all right that was fun fun uh top five and now we're going to bring it down a notch for next week's top five next week's top five top five depressing songs songs that just take you to that that rainy day place every time so that'll be next week and now we're going to end the show as we do every week on a high note Oh, thank you, Tom and Max. That's beautiful. Um, I'll just get mine in quickly. So we're we're about to wrap up the year here. My my high note, or again, I feel like I've done this before, but I'm doing it again. The Family Guy writers, they're my high note. We obviously are coming off this strike uh, that lasted a lot longer than anyone wanted, and it felt like we were going to be kind of cramming. Since we've been back, we have. I think broken seven or eight news stories. We've got so many scripts in the pipeline and it just feels like we never missed a beat. And that's because 
Goldie and the rest of the staff are so awesome and do such a great job and they make uh, my job incredibly easy. So they're the high note for me. That's awesome. All right. So last night I saw my first adult movie by myself in maybe 10 years. I just went to the movies. Wow. All the holdovers. And I loved it. Oh, I nice. Loved it. Yeah, look at his face. Inspired. I was transported. I forgot who I was. The whole And it's just what a fantastic experience. Oh, that's wow. great. Written by uh, former Family Guy writer Dave Hemmingson. Yeah, it's a terrific what? movie. Yeah, cool. that's great. Uh, by the way, the, the Holdovers is like the Taylor Swift era movie for bald guys. <laughs> One for the holdover has been said by every bald man in this country. <laughs> That's funny. Um, my high note was um, having Jimmy Carr come oh. into the office yes. and record. We had our first live recording with anybody in person. It yes. was cool. And it was so cool to see you guys like telling your Johnny jokes, you know, face to face. And it was. It was cool. Yeah. And Jimmy was a really sweet and he was awesome. Insightful. He made fun of us too. It was like getting made fun of by Rickles. It was yeah, very fun. It was it great. Was... He made fun of what we were wearing. Yeah, he <laughs> said, know, he said all Americans dress like toddlers. Yeah, yeah. He's so funny. good. And he was so <laughs> sharply dressed. That was yes. we could not we had to eat that insult because yes. he just looked like James yep. Bond. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's also just so relatable and so sweet. I wish he was, he was one of my best he friends. Was so nice. It was so nice yeah. of him to even come at all. And then he yeah. was hilarious and and wonderful uh so that'll be next week with jimmy carr uh thanks again to john beckerman this week yeah john thank you two for being awesome thank Thank you all for listening and we will talk to you again next week You're the child.